Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. We had Grace, our, our firstborn. I remember holding her and thinking, this is both the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life, and I'm so fucking scared that I will screw this up. In part two of my chat with Airtree Ventures and serial entrepreneur Daniel Petrie, he opens up about the strong support and mentorship from Bill Gates when he worked at Microsoft, about being a digital entrepreneur, achieving great financial success inside Kerry and James Packer's larger traditional media company. And he talks of the time he walked out of a meeting with Rupert Murdoch with a cheque for $40 million in his pocket to invest in Petri's new venture capital startup. But Daniel Petri also ventured off the straight and narrow highway to business success at all costs and took a few byways. In this interview, he speaks candidly about the impact on his life and career of a not-so-happy childhood and then a family tragedy how despite all his business success as a young man, those personal demons led him to make a genuine deal with himself to try and be not only a better father to his daughters, but a more well-rounded and giving human being, not all consumed by business. In this process, he became a major philanthropist and even a best-selling author on fatherhood. A family tragedy brought you back to Australia. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'd just been made a vice president at Microsoft. There was only 11 in the company. I was the first non-American vice president at Microsoft. I was the first non-American to run a product group. So I was, I was doing quite well, and Bill had talked about promoting me to be a senior vice president. There was only three of those in the company. Uh, wow. At that time. So it was like, so the Congratulations career, for yeah. back then. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it was a very shallow pool of people that were choosing from. Not but, at all. But anyway, so it was things looking good in a career, career sense. And then I got a call in the middle of the night from my mum that my only sister, Gabriella, had been killed in a car accident driving back from Young, where she and her husband and her six month old baby had been picking cherries. She was killed. The baby flew out of the car, rolled down the highway, had broken nearly every bone in its body, her body. My mum was distraught, um, so I went to work the next day and just sat in my office and, you know, started to think about, you know, life in the universe. I jumped on a plane, came home, to funeral, obviously, then went back to work about two weeks later and my brother-in-law rang me to say, look, we need to decide what to put on Gabriella's grave, what's on the tombstone. And I remember just sitting there thinking, First, you're thinking, look, she was just such a better person than me. If someone was meant to be taken, it should have been me, not her. So it was kind of this like, life isn't clearly not fair because she was like, she was a really good person. And then thinking, well, what do we put on her grave? And we talked about it and we found something nice to write. And I can't remember the words now, but it was, it was sort of very meaningful. And I thought, well, what the fuck are they going to put on my grave when I die? Is it going to say vice president and soon senior vice president? I mean... It's good, but it's not how you want your life summarized. And so I started this whole sort of spiraling journey of, well, what do I want on my grave? I really, that, that was my thing. And I worked out that I wanted to say that he was successful at business, but he was a great husband, he was a great father, he was a great member of the community, that, that he added value in all these areas beyond what he did in work. 
And I didn't want it to just be those others. I wanted to say, no, 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 you can be successful at work and do these things. There's this whole concept that you can either be a good human or a good business person. And I said, and I said, no, this has got to be both. And so that became the driving force. And I then realized I couldn't stay in America. My mum and dad were broken. My brother-in-law was broken. Uh, Maddie, the girl, was had terrible injuries and she was a mess. And so I had to come home. I just had to come home. It was, it was, it was, and I thought also, like I'd climbed enough of the totem pole. I didn't need to climb anymore. There's no, you know, yay, I'm a, you know, no, there's way more important things to do in life. So I decided to come home. Bill very kindly moved Asia Pacific headquarters from the US to Australia. I didn't look, ask for anything. I said, look, Bill, I just got to go, you know, and he understood. He was very good. He was very, very good. He tried to get me to come back, and, but he was, he was super understanding. And then he said, look, I'll move Asia Pacific headquarters to Australia. Do you want that job? I said, look, that's very kind. Okay, sure. So I took six months off to help everyone. And then um, took over running one of nine countries in Asia for a while in Australia. But that also started my whole, you know, philanthropic thing and what's life like. And yeah, so, so in fact, your sister's death did have a lasting impact yes. on you, which I, you know, of course, it would in a family, but an only sibling. Oh well, it would look. It was we didn't have a very f- happy family life, and I don't blame my parents. They were they were from the Second World War. They'd gone through terrible, terrible circumstances. My father was in Buchenwald one of the famous concentration camps. He was a political prisoner. He wasn't a Jewish prisoner. He was probably treated better than the, the Jewish prisoners were treated, but he was still treated badly. And and my mother has lost everything in the war. So they had terrible. They came to Australia, foreign country, you know, weren't treated very well. So I don't begrudge them anything. They had a terrible life, but it wasn't a f- pleasant family home. And I- So what you mean it was- it was tough or you were expected to fend for yourself or? It was, it, you know, wasn't the sort of warm, loving environment that I probably needed, different makeups, different, you know, I probably needed a nurturing environment and they were working both lots of jobs. It wasn't their fault, but it wasn't what I probably needed. And I was also a wog in South Taramara, and I was about the only wog within about 60 kilometres. A wog from where did they come from? Romania, Romania. And so being a wog- And I only say that lovingly because you said it first. Yeah, 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 no, 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 I, I, now it's cool to be a wog, right? It's really, hey, you know, you're white, yuck. You, yeah, you got something that's like, cool. So, but then it wasn't cool. And I, so I, I had this sort of sense of, I wasn't happy at home. I spent as much time as I could playing sport or being with friends. And again, nothing against my parents. They tried their best. I fell the fish out of water at school because all my friends, and they would joke about me being a wog, not realizing that every time. I remember sitting in the playground thinking, please, someone, don't say that. Don't don't call me a wog. Don't call me a wog. And then they'd make some wog joke about something, and I would just feel. And it's not their fault again. It was just my kind of, you know, makeup that couldn't cope with that. So, yeah, it well, wasn't it great. it is their fault. I mean, there was a lot of that sort yeah, of was. stuff was, that went on done, in playgrounds. Yeah, and... I don't think it was done maliciously. I think it was just done. And the long part of this part is that my sister had anorexia. She had terrible anorexia, and that was her reaction to the family environment. She came out of that. They thought that she'd never get married or be able to have children because of anorexia. It can have terrible repercussions physically for, for women, let alone mentally. Met a guy, got married, had a baby, and literally six. And I remember talking to her in Seattle, and I thought, oh, my God. This is going to be perfect. My sister, she and I had never been close. We started to get close for the first time ever. And she was 33. And she had a baby. We had a baby. I thought, this is going to be cool. And then she's gone like that. 
And so I thought a lot about, I thought a lot about what I want. I wanted to make her proud. She was a good person. I wanted to live a life that she would say, Daniel, you, you, you've done a good thing because she was a good, really good person. So that has been it. Yeah. So long answer to a short question, but yeah, she's been, a, she, her, her dying, I'd rather she lived quite obviously, but her dying made me a better person. Back to your timeline, you started and didn't finish a PhD, yep. <laughs> uh, but you then went to really launch a startup, but it was inside a massive media company, yes. PBL, Publishing yes. Broadcasting, yes. Kerry and, well, really Kerry at that time. And you started eCorp. Yes. That was in the late 90s. How did that go? So, well, the, so the part of the backstory was I was running Asia Pacific for Microsoft. I worked out I was becoming a bit of a cynical dickhead, which is that, you know, I'd been working at the A-team. I'd been working at the top. In Seattle. In Seattle. I was on the executive committee, yep. you know, and now I'm appropriately a couple of layers down now. I'm running a, this region. I should be excited about that. And I wasn't. I was a bit cranky and a bit bitter. And and I thought, this is not good, you know. So I, I left. Again, I loved Bill. I loved Microsoft, but I wasn't prepared to go back to America. And there was a number of offers because I wanted my kids to grow up in Australia. I wanted my kids to be Australian. And so I left and I started doing a PhD. I wrote a, I wrote a book with David Harrington, The Clever Country, and then the PhD fell away because I didn't back up my hard drive. But that's another that's another question. Yeah, you should back up your hard drive in those days. <laughs> so now, what, you literally lost the thesis? I had done everything in my literary review and my structure of the questionnaires. Yeah. I had it sitting on my drive. I said, my office is a mess. I'm going to clean it up. So I took all my papers, all my copies of everything, threw them in the bin. The bin went out and the and the next morning they're taken away. And I, was, I thought, I'll uh, back it up tomorrow. You know, I'll back it up tomorrow. And we had a lightning strike on the house and it blew up the hard drive and I had nothing. I had no paper, not a single sheet of paper. And I had no, so what would have been two years of work, gone. With literally nothing. So for a tech guy, yeah, you're pretty stupid. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. So anyway, anyway, so I did that, and then I and then I, I met a few people. I met Kerry Stokes. He asked me to come and do something for him, and then I met Kerry and James Packer, and they said, actually, being Steve Barmer, uh, I think James Packer met Steve Barmer in a in a customer thing in Seattle, and they said they were thinking about technology, and Steve Barmer said, oh, there's a really good guy in Australia you should chat to. <laughs> Me and so I obviously had known Steve yeah, very well in at Seattle. Microsoft, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I met James and Kerry, and what I liked about it was they said, "Do whatever you want." Yeah, you know. So they were interested in the area, but having obviously been dominant in traditional media, still yes. they perhaps didn't know how to they get had, into they, it. Didn't know no how idea. to make money had out no of idea. it. I mean, James, to his credit, knew this was going to be big, and he knew there was nobody in the company who could do it for them, and they had to have a different approach, and it had to be separated, not be tied in. So he was he was very good. Kerry, I think Kerry thought it was going to fall over and fail and be able, he could then tell James, look, this failed. And, of course, it didn't. I remember when we you know, secured eBay for Australia and they made a ton of money out of eBay, Kerry and I had these huge fights. He thought eBay would never work because eBay is all built on trust. That, so, you know, when you sell something and there's a sense of buyer-seller ratings and Kerry, you know, gives you a sense of his mindset, said, well, it would never work. Why would anyone trust anyone? I said, well, because then you can't sell or buy again. And, of course, it 
did work. And so Kerry was looking for these things to fail. He, he was inquisitive, but he never really understood the power of, of technology. And James did. I mean, James didn't have a deep understanding, but he, he'd no, he seen got that he got it. So he yeah. let us run our race. And and we did a bunch of things. We invested in things like eBay. We also bought Ticketek off yes. the Hacker family and turned it into an online ticketing business. And what, you made it so much more profitable by Incredibly being more online? Yeah. Is that because there's no physical ticket? You yes, just exactly. Clip, you're clipping the ticket it each time. Exist. Yeah. So if you think about it, if you're making – I mean, I'm rough numbers. If you're making $5 per ticket, but you're printing the ticket, you're mailing the ticket, et cetera, et cetera, and now you're making $5 per ticket and it's just an email to someone, suddenly the $5 goes from being, you know, $5 less costs a dollar to $5 less costs $4. So, yeah, we turned ticket into this enormous profit machine. That was a a lot of engineering and work to do. But, yes, that is a business went from saying we bought at $50 million dollars to I think when the Packers sold at KKR, was worth like three or $400 million. So, yeah. And eBay was very successful and it very was really the, the precursor of all that kind yeah, of and online the, the exchange thing, and buying. And yeah, the eBay oh, thing, I mean, Amazon had been doing it, yes. but to a much smaller extent. Yeah, then. and the eBay thing was interesting. So this, this is something also in Australian context. So I decided to leave. I, I decided to stay for five years. I said to James, I'll give this five years. I'm going to leave. And I said to him, I'm leaving. He said, you can't and dad won't let you. And I said, well, I'm, I'm just, I don't want to do this anymore. I told you I'd do five years. I'm leaving. And as I was leaving, I- This um, was after five years? Yeah. And to be fair, I, they'd bought Crown. I went to one PBL board meeting in the Crown Casino, walking through the gaming room at 11 a.m. and it's full of people and their spouses are pushing troll, their, the kids in a, in a pram out the thing. I thought, this is not where I want to be. So there were a bunch of things going on. Anyway, um, as I was leaving, they were, eBay wanted to buy them out, the joint venture. Um, eBay wanted to buy the Packers yeah, out. Yeah, the joint venture. And, and we put in $3 million to start eBay in Australia. They provided the, they being eBay US, provided all the IP, the business IP. And they offered Kerry $120 million. This is two years later for that. And, well, three years later. And I had argued, don't sell. This is only going one way. And he's like, you're an idiot. They're offering us 40 times our money. I said, yeah, but Kerry, technology, network effect, et cetera, this is only going one way. Now, today that share would be worth probably a couple of billion dollars, right? Just that. But the two parts of the Australian psyche that was evident was one, there's money on the table, just take the money. With no sense of whether this has got longevity going forward. And this lack of understanding how these virtuous technology businesses can just spin up. All businesses can grow, but tech businesses can grow very fast. You then got on to Netus yep. and that was your first venture capital business. You got money from, well, sort of your first venture capital business. Well, I guess it was venture capital. We were given capital by the Packers right. and then we, we invested both in buying businesses and starting businesses. Yeah. I then did that. I did my ECorp years, went back to uni, didn't enjoy that, and then decided I'd do it again. So I went to see Kerry and James and said, I'd like to do – it again, but I'd like to make a bit of money this time, you know. And Kerry was basically, yeah, no, I'm not going to, you know. I said, but, you know, you did very well out of not just eBay, but the whole thing. They did very, very well. And he was like, I said, okay, fine. And so by luck, my co-founder of eCorp, Jeremy Phillips, was now working for, for Rupert Murdoch in, in News Corp. And so by pure luck, I ended up meeting Peter McCourt and then Rupert within a couple of days. And I walked out about a week later out of News Corp with a 
check for $40 million. I was hoping to get four. To start Netus. Yeah, I I'd, I'd, I'd wanted four investors, four investors of $10 million each, and, and Rupert agreed to give $40 million. Yeah. Okay, I want to sort of skip forward. You you ended up doing that, and then you sold it to Fairfax. We sold down a bunch of the businesses first, so so we did. You make a bunch of money out of that. Yeah, I did. I did. I did quite well out of out of NetUs. News Corp didn't do as well, but you know, again, you know, we we had these businesses. We said to News Corp, "You should buy these businesses. They're going to be really successful." And they didn't. Allure Publishing was bought by Fairfax. Allure Publishing became one of the most profitable parts of the Fairfax Empire. You know, and it was it was just this sort of people can't see the impact of technology. So we sold a couple of businesses to, to Fairfax, sold other businesses elsewhere, and I, I then left. I, I spent a bit of time at Fairfax helping them embed the businesses and then ran screaming from the building. Yeah, because they probably thought traditional media was still... Yeah, they just didn't get it. They didn't get it. I would still argue they still don't get it, but um, for another day. Where did your entrepreneurial spirit come from? I mean, I think my parents, my work ethic came from my parents. My parents were very, very hard workers. And because I was a wog and I was different, I thought I wanted to prove I was good at something. So being smart. So applying myself, I don't think I'm actually that smart a person. I think I work really hard. So working really hard at school, doing really well, proving that I, you know, I was worthy. So I think that's where it came from. Entrepreneur, I think, comes from I, I get cranky at watching things be done badly, whether it's in the philanthropic space. Or, so startups are perfect sort of analgesic. You know, they sort of, because they can, you can say, well, I can do it better and we'll do it better over here. So yeah. that's where it comes and, from. And you can help guide these help guide founders them. who've yes. got the energy and the passion yeah. and the idea. Yeah. And there's nothing better than helping a founder and knowing you've helped. I mean, there's one thing to provide money to someone that go off and do well. And yes, your investors will do out of that, but there's another way more fulfilling sense of purpose you get when you know through your effort and advice, you've actually helped move that dial. That make that that is the best feeling in the world. You've also written a couple of best-selling books on fatherhood yes. and the importance of fatherhood. Yes. And you're also a philanthropist. Yes. So you talked about where the philanthropy might have come from, but what gives with the fatherhood? So when we had Grace, our, our firstborn. I remember holding her and thinking, this is both the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life, and I'm so fucking scared that I will screw this up because I want to be the best possible dad I could be. I just, I just think that's so important. And then I started reading, and there was nothing much written about fathers, and there was also nothing written about time with fathers that it's important. It was mothers, but nothing about fathers. A lot of research, long story short, there's a lot of research that shows that, that, that fathers spending time with their children has a demonstrable impact on the child's well-being. Of course, mothers, and we know that. But fathers, it's actually, it's real. And so I, I did a bunch of research, which is part of my PhD. I used, I used some of the references I found to then rewrite a book on, on fathering. And yeah, it was a bestseller. And did very well. Wrote another couple. One called "What Matters About Work Family Balance," and I guess my thesis after Gabriella died was: How do you do both things well? How do you be successful at work and at home, and knowing that you can't extreme on either vector? There's no way you can be the most successful business person in the world and be a great dad. You can't. Impossible. Now you can't probably be the best dad in the universe, and without 
foregoing some degree of business success. You, you have to give up on something. So I decided to balance it. I decided to say, I'm going to try and be successful at business, but I'm going to absolutely prioritize being a dad. And I will, I will give up career opportunities and I will do certain things in my work day. And I've written with about time that. Management time and, management. Yeah. To make sure I'm a present dad. I know I've probably screwed up with the girls. They'll probably come onto a podcast in a few years' time saying what a screw up I was. But I know that I put my head on my pillow and when I die, I've tried my best. I've tried to be the best possible dad I could be. Sort of back to business, have there been any failures and oh, or, yeah. or near failures and have you, what have you learned from them? I've invested personally in a couple of businesses that didn't do well because I, I, I let my passion get away, not my analysis. So the work analysis I apply in, in air tree investing, I didn't do at home. So that's been a real sort of lesson about you have to apply the intellectual rigor as well as the passion. That's been a, a huge mistake. I think- so did you lose a lot of money? No, well, not a lot, no, no. But but it was more that, you know, I'd done such a good job in the investing space. Our loss rate at E Corp, our loss rate at NetUS is super low, like super, like world-class Loss low. rate, Loss yeah. rate, you know, the, the, the rate of companies that we invest in that fail, yeah. super low rate. And Airtree One will be a super low rate as well. Yeah. So, you know, to do that and then not do it at home, if you will, was was a lesson. I think I've also, I think, failed somewhat in not learning how to to like yourself. There's a great song and it talks about how learning to love yourself is the greatest love you can and, and the right way. And I think by not learning how to like myself, I probably was not as positively influential on my kids as I could have been. So that's been a big lesson. I've tried to help my kids like themselves because they're good people. And you've got to be careful it doesn't become ego or arrogant. Yeah, but, but self-esteem, self-esteem or self-worth. I've got zero. I mean, mine's in the negative territory. And that's fine. I'm, comf- I'm comfortable with it now. But I don't know. I think, I think we all search for validation, in, you know, internal validation, external validation. I think I've just had – I don't know. I don't know. There's a great book by M. Scott Peck who wrote The Road Less Travelled. And he talks about three things you've got to learn when, you're, when your kids are you – know, you've got to learn delay gratification. You've got to learn balance. You got to learn to seek out truth. You got to learn to take responsibility for your actions, and these are things you have to learn as a child. But he said the most important thing a child has to get is unconditional love. They need to know that they come from that. There's a place they can go to, either in physically or in their heart, where they're unconditionally loved by someone. Then they can venture into the world and have their and skin their knee. But if they don't have that, that they carry with them this sense of I'm not worthy, I'm borderline worthless. And so I think, I think the one thing we've tried to give our kids, our girls, is a sense that you are genuinely, unconditionally loved. Your love for who you are, not for what you do, but for who you are. And I think with that, I think it helps them explore life. I'm asking all my guests this. Do you have a business motto? Um, or a life motto? I do, actually. I bought you this book, which is for you. Oh, It's my favourite book. It's by Matthew Ricard. The title is Happiness, and people get caught up in it and think it's a sort of a light, sort of flirtatious, sort of joyful. It's not. It's about deep fulfillment. Matthew Ricard is a, was a French biologist who decided to become a Buddhist monk. So he wrote this book. He became a Buddhist monk and wrote this book. So it's a very practical, sort of hardcore look at, at happiness. And there's one line I want to say, make sure I say the line properly. And, and this is probably the line that I think guides me most. 
It is essential to understand that we make ourselves happy in making others happy. And I think I've worked out that I get the most fulfillment and feel a sense of purpose by being positively impactful on others. Way more than money, houses, cars, titles, networks. Okay, so key things then for entrepreneurs and founders that you back. Are you cheerleading constantly from the sideline or do you no. enact the intellectual rigor that yeah, Bill no. Gates taught you yeah, to no, enact? No. So I think I think for founders you need to always maintain intellectual rigor on in what you're doing. Which actually means what? Which means don't get caught up with your own bullshit. Look for the data that proves that the thesis. Look for the data that says you're doing a good job. Look for the data that says your customers care. Look for the data that says that people will pay for what you're doing. You know, look for the- Look for evidence that says this is a good idea in the first absolutely. place. Absolutely. Don't just look for the positive data. It's like the scientific thesis. The scientific thesis, you've got to disprove the null hypothesis, right? It's that. But the other part of founders is also, yes, you're going to work probably a lot harder in your 20s than you will- later on. But understand that life is all about balance. And, and there's a wonderful Buddhist concept about living every day as though it's your last, but it probably won't be. So keeping conscious about that. And the third thing I and at work I talk a lot about is, you know, it is really important in life that we think about the impact of our behavior on others. So if you're a founder and you're driving a team, that's fine, but don't just do it because you think it's important. Do it because you think that they think it's important that they're getting a positive experience. I think it's really important in as you build a business, you don't just have this great business. You can say these people flourished when working for me. And that only happens if you're cognizant about the impact you're, you're having on them. And you can do all you can do it all together. It's consciousness, right? It's that sense of balance and consciousness. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Uh <laughs> I'm obsessed at the moment about two things. I'm deeply worried about the state of the world. I mean, that's an easy thing to say, right? But, you know, in the age of Trump and the age of advanced AI and the age of this polarization of ideologies, I, I worry for the world. Now, how do I how do I help that? Time will tell, but I worry about that. And I'm really, really, really worried about how do I use the next 10 years to be a really good dad and a good kind of, I guess, elder mentor? How do I make this more about them, not me. And I, I don't know, because I know that my intellectual capacity is dissipating. I'm not as sharp as I was five years ago, I'm pretty sure. So how do I make sure the next 10 years is not just about me and what I want, but what can I do with this so that I've done something good? Is there one big lesson you've learned along this journey as an entrepreneurial sort of journey? Look, I think probably the, the, the big lesson is the one I, I referred to earlier, which is this sense of, you know, looking for data to support anything, your thesis. And that could be even with relationships, right? I mean, just just getting out of your head. I don't know if you've ever read Kahneman's book, Slow and Fast Brain. It's a great book. He got a Nobel Prize in economics with Tversky on, on decision theory and behavioral theory. And it's a wonderful way of explaining why we make shit decisions, right? Because <laughs> it's about the way the brain works and how it makes fast decisions, burns less neurons, blah, blah, blah. But the point is pulling yourself back in every decision and just thinking about it and thinking what is the data sounds, you know, mathematical or computerish, but what do the facts tell me about my relationship with my kids or my wife or my friends or my work and applying that? That's the big lesson. In your success, 
how much has your intelligence, your skills, your drive, in other words, your innate abilities been responsible for it and how much is luck? Oh, 50-50 on a good day, probably 40-60. No, I think I was lucky. You know, if I'd been born a thousand years earlier, being good at programming and technology wouldn't have got me very far. So I, I was, I'm lucky that being a nerd's useful at this point in time. Yeah. Daniel Petrie, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining me on Thanks, Build Hal. It, They'll Come. Thanks you very much for having me. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.